Welcome, everyone, and thanks for joining us for the next episode of the Rocky Mountain Myrec Short Takes on Suicide Prevention podcast. I'm your host, Adam Hofberg, and I am really looking forward to my chat today with our guest, Dennis Gillen. Well, welcome, Dennis. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Adam, as we speak right now, I am in my hometown of Greenville, South Carolina. So you're in the mountain zone. I'm in the eastern time zone, but our, our cause covers whole time zones, unfortunately. And um, I'm looking forward to this conversation because you and I planned this a couple months ago. And new data just came out yesterday regarding uh, completed suicides. And it's, it's obvious we have much work to do. Absolutely. So I hope that today we can cover a good amount of information on the background of suicide and really spend a lot of today focusing on the message of hope that you are, are such an ambassador for. So um, before we jump into that, I think it's important that we take a moment to acknowledge your personal connection with suicide and suicide loss and also why you're so passionate about this topic. So could you uh, tell us a little bit about that? Sure. And when you get into suicide pre- prevention business as a non-professional, I am not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I want to say that right up front. Um, what happened, it's one of those causes that you don't find it, it finds you. I was a junior in uh, at West Virginia University when the phone rang. It was a Wednesday. I can remember it like yesterday. And I, I'm one of five kids. And it was my younger sister, Janice, telling me that you need to come home. Mark died. And they told me Mark died in a car accident, but they don't, they didn't know, my family did not know what to tell me. Um, you all know why we're here today to talk about uh, suicide prevention. I lost my older brother, Mark, to suicide. He battled depression for years, and, and Mark died by suicide. And if, Adam, if we were to stop right there, the story would be sad enough. Because one suicide is way too many. Uh, but 11 years later, just when I thought we were out of the woods, remember I told you I'm one of five kids. It was Sheila, Mark. Uh, now deceased. It was me, Janice, and Matthew, my younger brother, and 11 years after we lost Mark, in a drunken stupor with access to lethal means, I lost Matthew to suicide. So your your listeners are listening to a guy that lost not one but two brothers to suicide, and I swear I wish the topic were different. It's brutal. Yeah, I, I'm so sorry to hear that, and you know, I, I absolutely commend you for your courage, and for channeling your grief in, in such a, a positive way for this field of suicide prevention. So again, I really appreciate you sharing that story and your connection and, and having, on, having you on the show today. Well, I appreciate that. And for your listeners out there, it wasn't like a, an overnight conversion. I had 16 years, I didn't even talk about my brothers. I couldn't say their names and I couldn't say the word suicide without just losing it. It hurt that much. And then when I lived in Chicago, as I told you, I now live in South Carolina. When I lived in Chicago, I worked on the suicide prevention hotline, helpline, the 800-273-8255 number in, for suicide prevention services out of Batavia, Illinois. And that helped me on this healing journey. I was starting to help other people. And then when I got, came down to South Carolina, I got involved in a couple nonprofits. And they actually, one time they asked me to speak about my uh, losses. And that's what started this whole uh, public speaking. Uh, I thought I was done. I spoke about my brothers once at one of those uh, wonderful out of the darkness walks put on by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And I didn't want to speak about it, you know, very reluctant. And when I sat down later, someone came up to me and said, you need to tell that story more often. And I started laughing because I said, oh, that's it. 
I'm done. I, uh, that's a one and done show right there, folks. I can't talk about them again. And then here I am speaking professionally, uh, going coast to coast, talking about my brothers. It's just funny how it all worked out. But I want your listeners to know that you know when, when you're grieving like I was, I didn't turn around that you know the next day. So we got to do something about this. I was hurting for certain, and I went into my man cave for a long time and, and let the grief do its work. You know, I ended up raising a family. I have two boys, married, um, since divorced, getting remarried. And, you know, life came at me. But finally, when I felt the urge to help, you know, the suicide prevention helpline was there and then getting more active with nonprofits helped a lot. Hmm. Well, uh, you know, I think, uh, when we talk about suicide prevention, there's there's so many angles we can take, uh, so many potential topics we could discuss. And I think for today, we really wanted to talk about suicide prevention for men. And this talking about men in mental health and men as an underserved population in mental health, I think it's just so important. And uh, I'm wondering if you could start with giving us a little bit of the sort of lay of the land with men and mental health and why suicide prevention for men is, is so particularly important. Sure. And that's a great question, Adam, because, you know, I lost two guys. And so it's, it's, it's personal for me. Um, and, and for any other listener out there, you know, the minute I go on one of my man rants about, you know, 78% of all completed suicide or suicides are men. I want to say that again, 78% of all completed suicides are men. And I, I will go on a rant about this, and then I'll run into somebody that lost their sister or their aunt or their, you know, their daughter, and my heart breaks just the same. You know, one is too many. I think we're all in agreement on that. But that 78% number, if we're ever going to move the needle on completed suicides, and, and, and the 2017 data was 47,173, and that's where I'm getting the data now, where I'm getting that 78% number. The new data that's out, we... It's dis disappointing because it went up to 48,334. I don't have the actual percentage of men in that data yet because it's still new. Um, but it's, it's going to be around 78%. Let's be honest. You know, it's, it's, we don't talk about it. We Pride kills. And, and guys, uh, we just don't open up about this stuff. So I'm glad you picked that angle. It's an angle that needs to be worked. Again, if we're, if we're going to make a real dent in this number, we got to look at men. Hmm. Yeah, when you hear that, it, it really is uh, just powerful. And, and again, we don't want to focus too much on the numbers. As you mentioned, each each one of these numbers is, is a live loss to somebody's loved one and somebody we truly care about. So I, I want to honor that and, again, just honor your personal connection as we kind of continue this conversation um, because at the root of this is a person. Um, but it's important to look at these sort of epidemiological numbers to really get a get an understanding of the extent of the issue and also help us sort of focus in our resources for suicide prevention. And so clearly uh, men are, are a, a big group that we need to uh, focus our efforts. You're being so kind, Adam, and, and I appreciate it. <laughs> I'm sitting there thinking, going, man, we suck at this. <laughs> That's like, you know, I'm a very simple man. I'm like, we're not good at this. And we need, to be, we need to be better at talking about our emotions and mental health. And I think the tide's turning. I really do. I'm, I'm forever hopeful. Um, yesterday, I did a radio show locally here in Columbia, South Carolina. And we took a bunch of phone calls. I'm, I kid you not, every call that we took was a guy except for one. And that's not the case usually. Usually we don't want to talk about it. So 
uh, you know, the, the popular term being thrown around the suicide prevention uh, world is we're at a tipping point where maybe we, we, the guys are going to come out and say, well, we got to talk about this. And I've seen it in the last you know, five, six years. I went to a couple meetings and recently I got back from a, a leadership meeting in Denver uh, that went over suicide prevention with the good folks at AFSP. And I'm telling you, I saw more guys than I've seen in a long time. And I was really like, all right, cool. This is, you know, there was a day I was like, all right, one of three guys in that room and more and more are starting to show up. So I'm, I'm grateful for that, you know, and, and hopeful. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about uh, what might be driving this a little bit before we transition to how we can help it. Um, you know, uh, as you mentioned, there there's a fair amount of cultural uh sort of baggage that comes along with being a man and seeking help and maybe loneliness, isolation. Could you just uh, kind of talk us through those a little bit? Oh, yeah. And then men as a whole, you know, we don't talk about our emotions. We've been told our whole lives, you know, stop crying, walk it off. I remember getting hit by a ball in Little League and the coach's advice was walk it off. Like, all right, it kind of hurts. Um, <laughs> stop crying. Get out of first base. We need the run. I'm like, all right, put it aside. And that's, you know, We've been told for a long time to, you know, put it away, put it away, put your emotions in a box and don't worry about it. And, and we, I think we're, we're seeing the fruits of that. It's not very healthy. Uh, it's, it's not a good coping mechanism. And then you heard me speak about my brothers, and I did not talk about means at all. And I, I do not in my talk talk about means. I try to avoid it. Uh, some folks yesterday on the phones were talking. I don't talk about it. Gone is gone in my book. But we, you know, we we'd be remiss if we didn't say the use of firearms you know, in, with men is high and there's no turning back from that. It's a forever decision. Um, they say firearms account for roughly 50% of all completed suicides. I'll just tell you that holds true in the Gillen family. So we, we choose lethal means and it, there's no coming back. It's, it's truly a forever decision. We walk into the woods and we don't walk out and that's sad. Um, super sad. And you know, Every stat we have is, is, is a person, and um, we, we need to really make a difference and get some of these 48,000 people back from the edge. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and, and that, that uh, comment about lethal means uh, is particularly true in the veteran world as well. And, you know, coming from the angle of the VA research, uh, we know actually that number is up to 69, 70% of veterans die by suicide using a firearm. And so uh, it, it must be stated that the lethal means issue is, is, a, is a big piece of this pie. Yeah, and, the, and your numbers are higher than the general population in the VA world. And that makes sense, 69 to 70%, because the access to means, and uh, especially out west. And here in South Carolina, a lot of people hunt and all that. So guns are here, and they're, they're readily available. The biggest thing we're talking about now in the gun, you know, you start bringing up firearms, people right, immediately bow up a little bit. We're not talking about seizure. We're talking about safety, and that's a, that's a big difference. You know, we, I just want you to lock your stuff up. If I had to sit with a guy, and often this happens, um, if somebody loses a brother or something, they'll call me up and say, can you talk to this person? I said, sure, I'll talk to him. I've been down this path, and uh, this poor guy lost his brother because his dad kept a firearm on his nightstand loaded, and I'm sitting there going, you know, being as compassionate as could be, but inside my head going, wow, if he separated the bullets from the firearm and had a gun lock, we wouldn't be having this conversation. 
Um, but he left it literally on the nightstand. He goes, oh, we live in a rough neighborhood. And I said, how, you know, in my head, I'm going, how many times have you ever been broken into? Probably none. Um, uh, that's what a dog's for. Uh, <laughs> my uncle didn't get a dog. And uh, a real mean one. Um, but that was so sad to hear that, you know, the father, who now has to deal with that, you know, imagine the personal hell he's in mentally that his son took his unlocked firearm and used it. it it's got to be brutal. My heart breaks for everyone involved. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like there's there's so much uh, to unpack with all of that, but I do want to kind of uh, transition into sort of why I asked you to come onto the show, which was watching your TED Talk. You know, I, I'm, an, I'm a member of the... American Association of Suicidology Listserv, and uh, which, by the way, I encourage any of our audience to subscribe to. It's it's free, open to the public, uh, and you get lots of wonderful, engaging conversations around suicide prevention. Um, sometimes uh, folks disagree, but you get to see sort of both sides of the issue and many viewpoints. Anyway, so uh, Dennis, you you posted this link to your recent TED talk on loneliness and hope. And uh, my, I just uh, was a bit frozen for for a few moments after watching it and, and really soaking it in. And, and uh, listeners will definitely link out to that so you, so you can watch it as well. But I, I wonder if you could just tell us about your, your process there, why you chose this topic, and um, a little bit about your talk. Sure. I was, I had a friend, uh, that was done in Hickory, North Carolina. And I have a friend of mine who, uh, prompted me to, you know, you should, you should submit your talk to that. And I didn't want to do my talk. And in my normal keynote, like you and I did right now on this podcast, I talk about my brothers up front because I need to get them out of the way and for me to perform. It's hard to talk about. So I, I get it done early and then we move on to like warning signs and this, but for this Ted talk, I decided to tackle a topic that affects a lot of people. And I, got, I had to watch my dad go through this. He, he recently passed at 83 years old, but as you get older, you lose friends. I think Thomas Joyner down at FSU talked about that in one of his books, Lonely at the Top. As we get older, we tend to lose friends. And I'm really, um, you know, watching out for that in my own life. I'm a high alert. Like, Dennis, stay in touch with people. It's, this, it's work. And if you're an introvert, extra, it doesn't matter. It's still work. So when they, they said do the TED Talk, I started thinking about this loneliness thing, and I literally watched a Japanese documentary called Dying Alone. And when I say I watched it, I had to watch it because it had subtitles. I mean, it wasn't one of those things you put on Netflix and you walk away and empty the dishwasher. You had to sit there and watch it and read it. And it was sad because these guys were dying in Japan, and nobody knew about it. They, the opening scene was they were cleaning up this, young, this guy's apartment, older fella, and nobody knew about it for seven to ten days. And that bothered me. I'm sitting there, I'm in my apartment alone going, I hope that doesn't happen to me. Um, so that's where I started looking at this loneliness stuff. And I started looking at strategies to combat loneliness. And thankfully, I, I, I caught myself. I've done some of that. You know, flashback a couple of years ago, I got a divorce and moved from a big house to a small apartment in a town I did not know anyone. It was part of a planned, you know, reboot for myself. And I was going to be closer to my kids, so I moved up to Greenville, South Carolina, from Columbia, an hour and a half away. And I found myself alone a lot. So that's why I wanted to do the TED Talk. I actually went through it 
and I took some of these strategies and tried to get out of it. I joined a hiking club. I took a class, an improv class. I was looking for any excuse to get out of this tiny apartment I could, and it's, it helped in my recovery. And that, that TED Talk was brutal because I didn't talk about my brothers until the end. So the whole time I'm on stage talking about this going, oh, my gosh, i got to talk about Mark and Matthew. And you'll, you saw it, Adam, and the, the, there's a tone shift. And I said, remember those two guys I talked about? And my voice is starting to crack thinking about it. I watched my own TED Talk, and I cried because I can't believe it's me that this happened. To, I can't believe they, when they introduced me, they say, here's a guy who lost two brothers to suicide. I'm like, oh, that poor guy. And then they say, ladies and gentlemen, Dennis Gillen. I'm like, oh, it's me. But that's life. It happens. It happened, and we go on. But that TED Talk was brutal because I knew it was coming, and I could see my slides coming up, and there's a picture of Mark and Matthew. I'm like, how am I going to get through this? And we, you know, I got through it. 17 minutes. You saw it. It had a pretty good ending. And the bottom line is, and spoiler alert, it's not that I don't want to die alone. I don't want to live alone. And that's what the, the crux of the whole talk is. We don't want to live alone. And I think in the suicide prevention world that we all live in, and you mentioned that listserv, and that's full of wonderful people with tips, research, a whole gamut a whole spectrum of uh, lived experience, loss survivors, and I, I'm constantly gleaning information from those folks. Uh, but the whole crux is, you know, we don't want to live alone. So look at some of these strategies and, and go from there. So that's that's where the TED, the TED Talk went, and it was brutal. Mm, mm. Yeah, I, I, I think that was just brilliant to, you know, transition from we don't want to die alone to we don't want to live alone. I, I, I mean... It's so natural for us to to want to connect, and and I feel like there's just obviously, like you said, some people are more introvert. There's all these uh, individual reasons why we sometimes isolate, and there's societal reasons, and it's just you know there is this commonality among all of us that we want to be a part of a group and a community, and I, I I just you know that really struck me and it's it's so simple i mean it, it, in some ways it's obvious uh but in other ways it's like oh well here's a here's a an anchor point here's something we can latch onto okay we all like to be connected or we want to be connected how can we actually do that and uh maybe you could say a little bit more about that sure i i found an article by a gentleman when I was doing my research, uh, Ruben Castaneda for the USA Today, he came up with nine strategies to combat loneliness. And I'm like, when I was thinking about my TED Talk, I didn't want to just go up there and say, hey, we have a problem, and then walk off stage. Like, great, thanks, pal. You didn't help us with any tips. Um, you know, tell us something we don't know. So I, I, I used Ruben's article to look at references, like some of them were take a class. You know, number eight was find a therapist, which I did. Um, you know, talk to someone you think is lonely, all these strategies to combat loneliness. And I thought that was helpful. It was helpful for me and hopefully helpful for the audience that watches it, you know, volunteer, all these really cool stuff. And then, you know, I took on social media a little bit because that can isolate you. But one of the tips was use your smartphone as a phone. Um, And I think I was talking to my kids when I said that one, because I text them all the time. I'm like, would you call me? Um, So there was some really practical tips that I think anybody can do. Uh, so I, I didn't want to go up there and say, well, we're screwed, and then good luck. Uh, I thought I'd give them some hope. And uh, so 
some practical, like you said, Adam, practical advice of what we can do while we're here on this planet so we don't live alone. Yeah, yeah. One of them that resonated with me was that idea of like having some sort of group dinner or breakfast or, or lunch or, you know, whatever it is, just some kind of time to meet and, and eat. I think, uh, you know, breaking bread with people, as they say, you know, just like that idea that food can be something that unites us and it's not like a high pressure situation. It's just, you know, kind of informal and getting together with a group of people and, and either making food, going out to eat, whatever it is. And I thought that was really powerful. Yeah, I talked about that in the TED Talk, how a group of guys in my apartment building, we get together on the first and third Thursday of every month. And I kind of miss them because this, this month, January, when we're taping this, we had five Thursdays. I miss these guys, so I'll see them next week. The last time we did it, um, we had 10 guys show up. So it tells me that there's an appetite for this. You know, People want to connect. Uh, we send out a text. It's really simple, and anyone can replicate this. I don't have a monopoly on this. I, we send out a text, and we're guys. So normally, if it's Thursday, the text comes out Wednesday because we're late. And it says, you right? But hey, it's tomorrow. Oh, crap. Um, and then we pick a place, and uh, we just meet for breakfast. No agenda whatsoever. Um, you know, I'm in a Bible study. I don't want it to be that uh, because – Sometimes people get turned off by that. It's not like we're going to do a civic project. You know, we're going to clean. Nope, don't want to do that either. I just want to break bread with some dudes. And then a couple of those guys retired. They want to stay there all day, but I usually have to go to work. So I say, hey, guys, take care. And I leave. And I'm telling you, every time we meet, my day is better. I just have a spring in my step. That's how we start the morning. You know, it's just awesome. And um, I'm telling you, the, the last time 10 guys showed up, were like, oh, my God, we got to start our lunch group <laughs> in addition to the breakfast group we get too big but people need it and they keep showing up so i'm going to keep doing it encourage your listeners your vets you know it's not that hard anybody can replicate this thing it was me and another guy picking names getting phone numbers and coming up with a text chain the text chain has about 14 guys with the hopes that four to six will show up because life gets in the way you can't make it but one thing we decided to do, Adam, is keep it consistent. First and third, first and third, first and third. So people get ingrained. So it always happens. Whether one person shows up or all 14 shows up, it's going to go on. You need to get a group, Adam. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, like you said, it, it can be replicated. I'm imagining, you know, breakfast might be a little harder with my circle of people, but maybe, you know, figuring out a dinner and and again, we all try to do it, and I think life gets in the way sometimes. And just, um, you know, I was just encouraged that, like you said, you make it a priority, you make it a regular thing, and then, you know, next thing you know, um, you know, I'm imagining there was a there was a group of friends. Uh, some were not even friends; they were just people that kind of got picked up along the way. But we would have like a, a little uh, poker night, you know, just just sitting around a table. Uh, yes, you're playing cards. Uh, in this case, it was just uh, you know, playing, uh, wasn't for real money. Um, just, just hanging out and, uh, you know, you don't know what all these different conversations, connections, and, um, you know, there's just many forms it can take, but I like the idea of it and it just resonates. And I think maybe even particularly resonates, uh, for, for men that may be listening. Oh yeah. And what you did there with your poker night guys, back to the guy thing, guys will talk while they're doing something. 
I put a basketball court in my old house, so I would talk to my sons as we're shooting hoops. They would tell me stuff when I'm at school. We got a ping pong table where our dining room should be because I told my ex-wife, so listen, the boys will talk as we're playing ping pong. We don't need a dining room table. And she said, do it. Because I'm with boys, and this is classic. When I would text them or get them in carpool and say, hey, guys, how was school? You know this, Adam. I got one-word answers. Good. You put a girl in the car, I found out everything that's going on in school. But the boys wouldn't talk. But we talk like your poker night. People would say something. Hey, I'm starting a new job. In between hands. Like, hey, where you're, where you're working. Hey, let me know. I, I, I know some friends in that industry. And that's how it works. Guys will talk. That's why our breakfast club works. We talk while we're eating. Everybody needs to eat. Everybody needs to talk. Yeah, well, yeah, again, thanks for, for sharing this and sharing your practical tips. Uh, what else, uh, anything else you wanted to make sure we covered from either your TED Talk or just kind of like, um, you know, from your experiences and, and being out in the field, any, any stories maybe that you heard from somebody when, when they came to a talk of yours and really kind of showed the impact that these things can have? Oh, yeah. One time I had a kid. I was at the University of Delaware, and they brought a couple. Sometimes I'll have students come up on stage, and we vet them. We try to use the proper language. Like you and I so far have not said the word commit. We try to stay away in safe messaging. And this kid got up on stage, and he told a powerful story of a kind word that, you know, he's on this planet today because somebody said nice shoes to him. Um, he was wearing these sneakers. And I remember I hear stories like that all the time, like a well-placed kind word has altered somebody's path in, in a great way. Uh, and unfortunately, the converse of that is true. Um, when someone is mean, like they are on the interweb a lot, they could throw someone the other way. So I hear tons of stories. What's interesting, when I do my talk, I don't do Q&A because it's such a tough subject and we end on a, 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 a high note and I walk. But I tell the kids I'll stick around as long as you want, usually if I'm out of college. And I remember I went to Georgia Southern University. I was done at 8 o'clock. Those kids hung out. I did not get back to my car at 10.30. They want to talk about it. They want to talk about it. And, what, Adam, what you can help me with, with your vets, your veterans, and some other folks, the numbers for completed suicides for men, 44 and higher, that age group, I really can't figure out how to get those folks in a room, per se. I've, I've done some church barbecues. Again, back to the food theme. You know, we had to lure them in with food. Um, that's a tough crowd to get assembled. Um, the colleges, sometimes they make it mandatory. I've spoke at some like fraternity groups where it's all dudes, and I love it because they're younger. Uh, but that really at-risk group of mid, middle-aged men, and I'm 56, so I'm not pointing any fingers at anybody and saying, you're old, I'm right there. This, these are my people. I can't figure out how to get a really solid group of them in a room. Now, the construction industry, which has a high rate of suicide, they've taken on this, uh, and they're doing really good stuff with those guys in safety means. They're putting under the guise of safety, and they're doing some really cool stuff and getting those folks in a room. But if you, are, you or your listeners can help me out here, say, you know, that's a high-risk group. Where do they meet? What do they do? And how do I get a hold of them? Yeah, really. That's uh... – very good food for thought you know like you mentioned you know colleges are these places where people assemble and of course there are older people in college too but just the idea of where do you where do you catch the men in their middle years and you know i think with veterans at least you know um, some of the veteran service organizations have a great community and and we've definitely tried to 
you know, uh, tune in to some of their events and, and, and reach uh, veterans in their middle years. But you're right. It's just a, it's definitely a opportunity uh, that's very ripe. And so, um, you know, you, you mentioned, hey, listeners, if you have an idea, uh, we would love to hear it. So feel free to reach out to us. You know, we'll definitely put Dennis's uh, contact information. Um, you know, I, I love thinking of this podcast as also maybe an incubator for ideas and hopefully uh, maybe somebody has some 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 great idea up their sleeve that uh, maybe thinking about how we can specifically reach men in their middle years yeah yeah that's the one that keeps me up at night so thank you for posting that Adam I really appreciate it absolutely well Dennis as we wind down today uh, first of all again I just want to thank you for 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 coming on to the show but um, I did want to leave uh, on a on a high note and as you mentioned um, there's all these inspirational stories you hear and I'm wondering if you have any words of wisdom um, in your experience that you want to uh, leave us with for today. Sir, sure, I got this poem that's on my refrigerator. It's staring me in the face and I love this one. I'm going to start using it in, in some of my talks. It's about sorrow and you know I went through two really rough periods of my life with the loss of Matt and Mark and what did I learn from it? So this guy, Robert Browning Hamilton, has this really short poem, and it goes like this. He goes, I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. And I read that, and I was like, wow, I learned a lot in, in some of my darkest places. And I also learned that the light is coming. Just hang in there. The light is coming. Stay with us. So when I read that poem, I was like, wow, this guy's speaking to me. You will learn a lot from your sorrows. And everyone who's listening to this podcast has had them. But they also make you a better person. Let the grieving process do what it has to do. And you'll come out the other side more empathetic. And that's what we need in this world right now. We need more people with empathy and caring, um, which means stay off the Internet because you don't find much of it there. Um, but when I read that poem, I was like, this guy is speaking to me. So hope that helps somebody. Wonderful. All right, folks. Well, that's going to wind it down for today. Uh, once again, this was Dennis Gillen, and uh, we'll include some links out so you can learn a little bit more about Dennis and uh, the important work he does for suicide prevention. And uh, thank you again for being on the show today, Dennis. Adam, and thank you for all that you all do. Thank you very much for doing this. You're welcome. All right, folks. Well, uh, please tune in next time for more important interviews on work in suicide prevention, mental health, and resilience. And if you liked what you heard today, uh, give us a follow, give us a listen, and share with your friends. Um, And until next time, join us for more interviews on important work in suicide prevention. Mm